I guess viruses co-evolve with their hosts in such a complex way that there's a, there's what people call an arms race going on there where the host responds and gets better at clearing virus. The virus responds to that, that maybe antiviral response. And, and you have this complex entanglement then of viral and host systems. Hello. And welcome to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the CVR's very own staff and students. Today, the 1st of December, marks World AIDS Day. World AIDS Day is designed to raise awareness of those 37 million people infected with HIV, and this year aims to end isolation, stigma, and transmission under the umbrella of a right to health. This day is one of nine global health days of the World Health Organization, alongside other infections like tuberculosis, malaria, and hepatitis. AIDS, or Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, is caused by HIV, or Human Immunodeficiency Virus. HIV is a kind of virus called a retrovirus. There is currently no vaccine to stop you from contracting HIV, and there is no cure if you do get infected. Those people infected can never rid themselves of the virus, but can stop developing AIDS by taking medicine known as antivirals that block the virus from growing inside them and those, and thus, then getting sick. This medicine is now a combination of different drugs referred to as highly active antiretroviral therapy, or HART for short. A combination of medicine is needed because if only a single drug is used, HIV can easily become immune or resistant to it. HART must be taken for the life of the patient or else HIV will begin to grow again and can lead to AIDS. Some of the antivirals are so effective that they can even be taken by an uninfected person to prevent HIV infection. This is known as pre-exposure prophylaxis, or PrEP. While developments like HEART and PrEP are making global control of HIV-AIDS more of a reality, there is still work to be done, making World AIDS Day all the more important. But nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution, and HIV and AIDS is no exception. Questions like, where did HIV come from? When did people first get infected with the virus? Why does HIV cause AIDS? And how likely will the virus become resistant to our antiviral? These questions can all be answered by looking at how the virus changes or evolves over time. To explore this important area and mark World AIDS Day, we talk with Professor David Robertson, Principal Investigator and Head of Bioinformatics at the CVR. David has dedicated his career to understanding HIV evolution and how it interacts with our cells, and he does this through the power of a computational biology approach. Listen to Jack and I's conversation with David about HIV, bioinformatics, and trying to figure out how viruses hijack our body using a way of thinking called control theory. One of the main things, or one of the themes of your research has been on HIV-1. Uh, and so this is going on World AIDS Day. We wanted to take this uh, opportunity. Why do, you, why do you still think it's important to study HIV? I guess... I mean, principally, there's still lots of infected people. It's still a very serious illness. Um, and although, I guess, in the West we have some fairly effective drugs, they still have to be taken through an individual's lifetime. And I guess treating people in the rest of the world is now has to be a priority. So, so it's still, um, yeah, it's still very much a priority. So, is a sort of a bioinformatics approach useful for sort of? From a sort of therapeutic perspective, or is it more useful in a, a basic biology kind of way of looking at? It? I think both. I guess you're you're fundamentally usually studying data on computers, and so you're using bioinformatics software to analyze mutations, to 
um, look at amino acid sequences, look at structures, look at interactions, design drugs. Um, and so very much bioinformatics slash computational biology is at the forefront of any analysis you're going to do. Um, HIV is interesting, I guess, from a more theoretical perspective because there's been so much study of the virus, there's just a lot of data available. And so mm-hmm. things like viral host interactions, there's now thousands of interactions that have been recorded in the literature. These have been um, curated and put to databases, and so that allows us to model in silico viral host interactions, which is interesting. So I think one of the things, one of the ideas of World AIDS Day is to draw attention to the AIDS pandemic, but I guess that's saying that there might be only be one kind of HIV. So I think a lot of your research has been sort of describing this diversity and trying to understand the diversity of different HIV viruses. So maybe you can give us a background on the, the biology of is there just one HIV? Well, so, so I guess even with an individual, every variant tends to be different. Because it's an RNA virus, it mutates um, very readily. So there's a lot of diversity, a lot of change within individuals. Um, when you look between individuals, then you see quite a lot of change too. Interestingly, not as much as you'd expect. And there's a whole interesting side story about how the viruses that are transmitted tend to look more similar to the viruses that establish the infection. Um, but then if you actually look at where HIV-1 came from, it's clearly HIV-1 came from chimpanzees. Um, and actually there's some there's there's different lineages, um, and these have been labelled um, HIV-1, group M, N, O, and P. And some of these are actually more closely related to virus from gorillas and not chimpanzees. Um, I guess what's interesting in terms of the human population is that the virus was around since the very sort of early part of the 19th century. And so it's been in the human population for about 100 years, um, whereas we just became aware of it in the 1980s. And, and that's, I guess, an interesting message about understanding viruses in the human population and how they can be a law around for quite a long period of time. Um, it, it's... I can't remember what the question. <laughs> the no, question. Like, oh, like, can you tell us about the diversity of it? So I think there, there's HIV one and there's HIV two. So so the so the different lineages from the different um, chimpanzee or gorilla hosts have been called HIV one groups, and then one of the groups in particular, Group M, which is linked to virus from chimpanzees, has been the one that's responsible for the human pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, we're fairly sure that that evolved mostly in Central Africa and then was distributed around the world um, from there. I mean, we even have we have some very rare viruses that have that have from archive samples that go back to the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. And so we you can look back as well, include those in the in the evolutionary analysis. So so we do know a lot about this virus. Um, so is there something special about Group N and White Tickle, or did they kind of get lucky, as it were? Um, there seems to be some um, differences in terms of some of the um, antiviral molecules. I think it's particularly tethering um, is the one that seems to be slightly like seems to be slightly different. Is that right? I, I think I my understanding <laughs> is that group M can, uh, can antagonize human tethering a bit yeah, better than the yeah, other ones. Yeah, yeah. and so the, the, there have been some um, some subtle changes as it went from chimpanzees. It is interesting that it that the virus that's in humans is also in our most closely related primates and that suggests yeah. that you know that's that 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 they've kind of managed to i guess um, um the virus that's evolved there has managed to transmit more effectively to humans maybe because of that and 
we're fairly sure the virus in the chimpanzees is a recombinant virus between two different monkeys. And so you have this quite interesting, complicated story that goes back um, over millennia that, that, that tells us a lot about the, the evolution of the viruses. And one thing I'm always interested, are there more HIV ones emerging or has that, has that stopped? Well, the, the, the last one that was found was HIV-1 group P, which was closely to relate to the gorilla virus. But um, no more have been discovered in recent years, and a lot of surveying have been done. But these are very rare groups. I mean, there's only like handfuls of people were ever, a handful of people were ever found to have group P. So that suggests that these are essentially variants that are probably almost extinct in the human population, that they're that they weren't really going anywhere. Um, Group O is interesting because it has infected quite a lot of people, mainly in Cameroon and that part of Africa. And so hundreds of thousands of people have been infected. It tracks back to about as old as Group M. Um, and, and so it's interesting to, to try and compare these different types of virus and, and, and understand why one went pandemic, why one didn't. Um, and, and, and I mean, there are some, as we've said already, there's some involvement of antiviral factors but a lot of it could just be chance just getting into the right networks of people the world is very globally um connected and so if you get into the right networks you can be spread quite effectively and then what about hiv2 i mean i know Everyone always says HIV-1, but what's HIV-2? So HIV-2 is, is, a, is a very very divergent form of HIV-1 that's more closely related to virus from Sudi Mangabes. And so it's only found in West Africa. And people that are infected seem to progress less slowly, seem to generally have um, less severe disease. And so it, 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 it's, it's a divergent type of HIV-1. It's interesting that HIV-1 and HIV-2 would seem to have turned up about the same time um, and I guess that just tells us again that these viruses are are always challenging the human population. Um, they can they can jump into the human population relatively readily. And, and yeah. So there's been much work done following the viruses around non-human primates, or is that kind of challenging to do? Just we just be lots of work, and and yeah. so 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 many African primates are, are are infected with SIV, and 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 there's interesting studies where they're trying to understand the kind of why they don't progress to disease. So a lot of them are are asymptomatic, and 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 so things like the Sudi mangabees and African green monkeys. Um, it seems to be that that it's not that the virus isn't replicating efficiently; it's that the immune response is mostly ignoring that. And so, unlike in humans, the immune response isn't running itself ragged to try and essentially aging the individual very quickly. And it's in its attempt to clear the virus. But is this because maybe those monkey species have been living with the virus for so long, and humans haven't? Well, presumably that that yes, that the, the the adaptations must have occurred to allow those monkeys to 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 um to to to, to tolerate the infections, and and that's whether that's I guess that's will have happened some some significant time ago. Where whereas clearly with the human population, we're using medicines and drugs to try and control the virus, and yeah. And not letting evolution. Yeah, no. Well, there are some. I mean, there are some interesting individuals. There's an there's a mutation um, CCR thirty two. There's a Delta 32. <laughs> it's a CCR five. A CCR five Delta thirty two mutation, um, and those individuals um, don't have the the one of the co-receptors that the virus HIV one uses. So it uses CD four receptor, and then usually the CCR five receptor. And so if you don't have that receptor, it's hard for the virus to infect you. Um, and 
the, the, the Pfizer actually divided, developed a drug around this, Maraviroc, and so that binds the CCR5 receptor and makes it unusable by the virus. Um, and so that, and we were involved actually in some of the work around that because what what the fear was at the time was that the um, the, the the use of the drug would promote the other type of HIV one in those individuals, the CXCR4 using virus, and there's some correlation between CXCR4 and disease progression. Um, it's not clear whether that's just an indicator of progression and it's actually probably more to do with the, the CCR5 cells being exhausted and then there's this receptor switch sort of having occurred earlier than that population emerges. But it was interesting then when you give individuals a drug that binds a CCR5 receptor, will that promote the evolution of CXCR4? And actually what we found was that almost in all of those patients, or in all, the, 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 the CXCR4 virus that emerged was pre-existing. And so actually they had a low level of that virus that was being masked by the CCR5. And so it wasn't that the CXCR virus was taking over, it was just being revealed by the by the use of the drug. And so that's interesting implications then for the levels of receptor switching, because that would suggest that actually more than the reported 50 to 70 percent of people that we see to switch are, are switching. And actually probably most people switch, but that's transient and, you, and you, so you don't observe that. And so that, that, that was interesting to work a bit with the drug companies well and and uh, we, 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 we kind of we also got to work a bit on the CCR5 um, resistant virus. The um, CXCR4 switch isn't really drug resistance because that's already an existing viral population. Whereas in some of the patients, what you see is the virus switching and managing to contort itself to sufficient to, to, to be able to use that 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 receptor, although it's got a, a drug molecule um, antagonizing it. And so that was interesting to study, and and it's a very unusual system because it's it's envelope-based drug resistance, and and drug resistance in the in, in most of HIV one genome is reasonably predictable. You can say. With some with some confidence, which sites you'll emer- will will emerge, because HIV one's envelope is very divergent um, and and almost a quite malleable molecule, um, with lots of glycosylation. It means that each individual's viral population has quite a unique um, um, envelope structure, a subtly unique envelope structure, and the resistant mutations that occur are then very context dependent. And that makes it a very difficult resistance type to call because in each of the different um, resistant viruses, you tend to see different sets of mutations. And that's due to those mutations occurring in the context of the the three-dimensional structure and then making subtle changes. And so, so, so I think, you know, that's, that was, that's quite an an important understanding of, 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 of that system. I guess to address all these questions, you're looking at um, sequences. So you can you can tap into all this different kind of biology. Yeah, yeah. So, so so I guess that's the the viral focus is very much looking at the viral genome and aligning genomes, looking at variants, um, translating those to amino acids, looking at the changes at the amino acid level. You can pick up signals of things like selection by looking at the bias and the kinds of changes that are occurring, whether they change the amino acid residue or not. Um, it's also interesting to think structurally about the context of those changes because we know from the the neutral theory of molecular evolution that a lot of change that you see in in in, in protein structures are just uh, I guess the, the dominant kind of change are the ones that just don't make any that don't make any um, difference to the molecule. It's still it can still fold. It's still stable. It still functions. And so it's interesting to try and think about the constraints then that are acting on the on the amino acid sequences from that structure that 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 prevent you seeing certain types of of, of changes. Um, and there's a lot of, I guess, 
epistatic interactions there. So in order for maybe a drug resistance change to occur or an escape mutation to occur in the immune response, certain other changes might have to precede that in order to make that that, that, that happen. Um, we're also looking at protein protein interactions and so how the virus interacts with the host system and building models of the host system. And we've had an interesting collaboration with some uh, mathematicians who use control theory um, and the idea with this is to study a directed network, so in this case, the signaling network, um, and work out how many interactions you have to make mathematically with that system to control it in, in its entirety. Um, and this has been done for disease and cancer, um, but none of the other biological systems that have been studied are, um, are really a directly a control mechanism, whereas the virus, when it infects a cell, it gets in through the receptors, it's making many interactions with the whole cell. It's controlling it. It's 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 redundantly interacting with signaling pathways, um, and so actually it becomes an interesting model, not just for using not just to study viral infection, but also to study the applicability of control theory to the study of intracellular networks. And what we found is, you know, one particular network seems to be closer to what the virus. Uh, one sorry, one particular control theory model. Is closer to what the virus um, um, is, is is doing in the system than another, and so that's that's quite a nice perspective because we're sort of we're using the natural infection of the whole system to understand something about how the system's organised, and then in turn, the mathematics is telling us something about how the virus exploits the system, mm -hmm. and so it, the, 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 the 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 these models um, try to identify. The, these these what they call driver nodes and so the virus tends to focus on these and so these are nodes that allow the network to be um, controlled very efficiently and, and and I think that's that's quite exciting because ultimately what would be useful is to build large models of, of human cells for example and then look at the interactions that the virus is making and understand that system um, in silico and that allows us you know by modeling a system to really get to a much deeper understanding than just a kind of informational or, or text-based understanding. It's, 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 it's something then we can replicate the biology in, in, in silico. Okay, so I guess at, at the minute people are just making these protein-protein interaction. Just they're figuring out what proteins interact with what proteins and then you're trying to take that. Yeah, yeah, and so, so there's been a large, I guess, I guess, constructing maybe static networks so just it's just a visualization of of every interaction each of the viral genes or the proteins associated with the genes makes with the whole system and, and in the past they tend to be very static they're they're they're, they're really usually just everything's on and it, but but that's not reality in reality you know the virus is it's, it's making interactions with a, a dynamic system. And so this is where these other models are more important because they're actually considering the directed edges in the network that you've got you know, many layers to these signaling pathways. And so you're now kind of trying to get closer to the reality of the biological system. And, and, and the challenge really now is to sort of maybe work with experimentalists and try and see you know, can we can these models help us understand something about the the, the 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 virology of these systems? You know, can can we do some iteration? Can we do some experiments to test these kind of mathematical hypotheses? And and then, and that's something that there should hopefully be opportunities to do at the CVR. Mm -hmm. So, and viruses are sort of a almost a simpler way of looking at these models. In that, say, something like HIV, where you've got what, like nine genes or something like that, and then is there a way you can sort of work out 
how the models would work on something like that, and then start sort of scaling up to more complex systems where you've got. Well, I think the, the I mean, the virus is just information, and 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 until it's in the system, it isn't, it isn't, it it, it, it it's it's mostly inert, and so. I think it's hard to think if you like if you look at the HIV one data, there's thousands of interactions, okay. and so it's so although it's a small genome, because it's our RNA virus has packed in a lot of function into that small genome, and mm-hmm. um, because because RNA viruses evolve quickly, they don't have the luxury of adding extra genetic content to their genomes, and for that then to add new function to the system, any extra gene, any extra material that's added before it has a chance to become useful, is always lost to the system. And, mm-hmm. and so you have these very small genomes packing in lots of functions. And so I think it's actually very highly complex and they're, yeah. and, and they're controlling the system in a, in a very, I guess, directed way. Um, I guess what's, I guess the interesting thing is that they're, they're, um, they're models of control. And, and so they're, although they're using the whole system they're telling us about the organisation of that. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's, it's quite a world away from what I usually work. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you. Are. I think it, you. Know, it's, I guess it's kind of like back when the molecular biologists used viruses to tell them about molecular biology, uh-huh. the, the discovery of splicing. Yeah. Um, using adenoviruses, so I guess maybe. Yeah, not sure. That's why you, you can pull out the interesting things. But I guess you're trying to get to the stage where you can make predictions and then say. These are yeah, well, well, that's a, yeah. I mean, at the moment, I guess we're at the point where we've got these models and we've got the control nodes, and so we're we're overlapping the mass with the virus, and that's we've got a paper now we're about to submit, um, and so I guess the challenge now is to sort of you know, what can we do with that understanding? Can we does it does it either help us to, to I guess maybe identify off-target hits, so maybe a lot of the things that the virus is doing isn't directly relevant to its replication and that stuff that might then be symptomatic for disease mm-hmm. um, not you know this might not necessarily be HIV it could be other viruses that you know are either cancer causing or cancer associated mm-hmm. or other systems where you know the virus is just replicating and it's it's its sole purpose is to maximize its reproductive success um, disease symptoms illness are very much just a byproduct of that and it's so it's so I guess thinking along those kind of lines to understand how the virus is using the system to 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 kind of what's actually going on what are what are what are the what are the consequences of that infection because it's a sort of it's a stochastic and fairly haphazard system there'll be interactions going on that aren't that relevant to the virus and they're just being made just because they can be made and if they're not too detrimental if they don't affect reproductive success too much just, uh, they'll just they'll just happen and yeah. and and that's also about i guess what you might think about as evolutionary capacity so that any 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 evolutionary system has to have enough variation and change in it in order to adapt and to be able to change to new systems and so a lot of those stochastic events are important because they're they're future real real interactions and and I guess viruses co-evolve with their hosts in such a complex way that there's a, there's what people call an arms race going on there, where the host responds and gets better at clearing virus. The virus responds to that that maybe antiviral response, and and you have this complex entanglement then of viral and host systems, both spatially, temporally, but then on an evolutionary axis. And, and I think that's there's a really interesting, um, yeah, interesting way of thinking about viruses there and what they really are that they that they are they are very much 
the horse that that that, 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 that these are in some sense very linked systems mm. or they're, yeah yeah it's really interesting i can't work out this is a <laughs> this is a really simple or a really complicated question um how do you so if you've got these interactions yeah that you've found, how, how do you tell which ones matter <laughs> <laughs> well, so I get so that's so that's so it, so these kinds of models are they're, they're trying to identify out of the known out of the set of interactions, which ones are the ones that really control the system, and so that's that's tends to be the molecules that are highly connected, and so if a molecule makes hundreds of interactions, and it's okay. probably it's going to be more important to that to that sort of so these are sort of directed networks, and so the downstream molecules are the ones that are that are the important one and. What we found with the model that we've been looking at is it it goes beyond just identifying the 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 the, the first set of nodes, and so there's a simple model that assumes this is a linear system, and so it tends to focus on the receptors because it assumes that if you focus on what you call the zero in degree nodes, so the first level of molecules in the system, the receptors, because it's linear, then you can control the whole yeah, of the system, which is not and that's not realistic. That's not what happens. You know both the you know both the, the, the are both the the, the the other kind of control theory models and then the virus are, are are identifying molecules right throughout the system that let you to control it and that's that's sort of closer to to the sort of biological reality. But are, then are you able to have you identified sort of new things or are you limited by what interactions people know? Well, so I guess there's more. So I guess in terms of when people have looked at static networks, they've sort of come up with glib statements like highly connected molecules are being targeted because that's efficient for the virus to target these. And so it's it's a very kind of, it's quite a one-dimensional approach. Whereas using these kinds of networks, because they're directed and you're looking at the set of interactions together and how they impact on the whole system, you, I think you're getting to a deeper understanding about why particular interactions are being targeted. And I, and I guess actually thinking about it, the challenge now is to work out what interactions any virus holds, because what we're looking at is a total set of interactions that have been reported in a database, and there's a lot of redundancy there. And we know viruses can hold redundant function quite well because they mutate a lot. You might have actually two or three interactions to the same pathway, for example. And so it's unlikely that maybe any one virus holds that whole set of functions. And so it's interesting to start thinking about, you know, so how does viral variation, how does the genome level change relate to functional change? Um, and, 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 and for some of these, it's quite clear that with the receptor switch from CCR5 to CXCR4, there's a handful of mutations that have to occur that allow the virus to then use a different receptor. Um, but that's kind of going on and on and on all the time. There's all these subtle changes, some changes, some changes to new molecules. Um, and that viral variation is in a sea of, of variation that's mostly about escaping the immune response. And so when we think of viruses fast evolvers, uh, we're usually thinking about the variation that isn't functional change. It's just amino acid variation that's allowing the virus to get around the immune response. Um, and so in that variation, then there is functional change. And that's, that's what's important when you change host species. So a new amino acid residue might allow you to adapt to the human population more effectively. And that's what happened with Ebola when people look back and um, they found that there was a particular residue um, 
that changed early in the in the outbreak that seemed to be allowing the virus to use hum, human cells more effectively. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so these these kind of very small numbers of, 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 of mutations are key to understanding viral virulence, pathogenicity, kind of um, host switching. These can be you know, very key events, yeah. Maybe by understanding the viruses that have done that, you can sort of predict what an Ebola-like virus might need to Yeah, yeah. And a good example is some of the influenza work where they were actually mutating viruses in the lab and showing the how to change species and how to aerosol viruses. And some of those studies now are, are, are important because actually when you see real variants in, in, in the wild, as it were, it gives you some sense of how close or how dangerous those particular those viruses are. I think, still, I think there's still a moratorium on some of that research on the yeah, influenza field, which, 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 which <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> clearly you can, you can be, you know, when you come to the, some of these um, yeah, respiratory viruses, they're very transmissible, very mm-hmm. dangerous viruses. Um, so you have to be quite cautious with working on them. Mm-hmm. I guess, is there any way you can use this information to sort of work backwards and identify maybe where viruses came from? Or sort of... Yeah, I think that's a, it's an interesting challenge to work out, I guess, when, you, when you're looking at the set of molecules the virus targets, then presumably they're quite often viruses that are more central or core to the system, what probably means that they're evolutionarily more ancient, they will be present in our common ancestors. And so we're actually, we're trying to develop a project where we're, Trying to look at the kinds of virus, kind of molecule, host molecules that are being used, and trying to link that to sort of more generalist versus specific viruses. So you might hypothesize that a virus that's able to jump between more divergent species is targeting molecules that are more are shared between those different species. And because because there's I guess a rule about viruses, they tend to be highly host specific. They tend to be quite careful about the hosts that they use, and that's because they're. They're, they're, they need the host system in order to replicate. They're entirely dependent on host functions. And that leads to quite a high degree of host specificity, usually, except there are cases when you have species jumps. Um, and, and so that's that's interesting to understand. Um, and we're also interested in looking at the microbiome. And, and, you know, particularly bacteria have viruses. And so bacteriophage or just phage are, are very much part of the microbiome. They're regulating the bacteria. Um, and so there's very interesting research now on the role of the phage um, in, in these systems. And ultimately, these are n- natural ways of dealing with bacteria that can they can be in, they can be harnessed as as, as therapeutically to, to kill bacteria in the in, in the in, in, in the uh, to replace antibiotics. Yeah, definitely. So maybe we can take this opportunity to go over your background. <laughs> <laughs> so how, you, how you got to uh, studying um, protein-protein interaction networks and viruses? Well, that, that, I guess that when I moved to Manchester and I, and I started working on, um, I guess, eukaryote evolution, we started looking at processes like gene duplication. We're looking at yeast. Um, and when you're trying to study functional divergence, what, what we... What what we had been doing was looking at the the, the changes in the the viral uh, and sorry the host, we're now talking about the host the host gene sequences so counting mutations and differences and so that's really just a proxy for change because you can have a lot of change in in, in any sequence and then you don't see any functional change um, and so this was I guess the early two thousands and what was becoming available was protein protein interaction data and so protein protein interaction data is directly looking at functional change in some ways so if you take for example, two duplicated proteins. So these are proteins that have uh, a, a shared ancestry, and they're through through a gene duplication event. 
Um, you can then look at the numbers of shared protein interactions between those. And so presumably straight after the duplication event, you'd see all the same interactions. And then as time goes on, as they functionally diverge, the number of shared interactions will drop. And so we were interested in that kind of evolutionary perspective. And then um, what became apparent was then viral host interaction data was also available. And so we'd already been looked at these kinds of host networks. And so it was an obvious um, it was an obvious uh, thing to do was to start looking at how does the virus perturb these systems? What molecules is it interacting with? Um, we collaborated a bit then when the, the when that was the, the HIV interaction database was put together generated the network images for that paper and so that was that was quite that was quite exciting at the time it was the sort of the first time that people had really kind of looked at these large numbers of host interactions and and, and that's something that I think is I guess really interesting to sort of think about in terms of how do you model a host system how do you think about the the the, the signaling pathways meta the metabolic pathways, um, protein-protein interactions in terms of complexes, um, transcriptomic data. And so, so by integrating different data types and then looking how the virus is kind of using a cell is going to be an interesting in terms of more fully understanding how viruses ex- exploit these systems. And, and then maybe maybe we can then come up with you know, new ways of intervening or new ways of, 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 of understanding that, that system. So I guess all, all this relies on having really good data. Um, yeah, so at the end of the day, we're dependent on experimentalists. People yeah. have to make data still. And that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's a lot of data now. Can you then tell people, well, maybe you should be making this kind of data? Well, then that's always that. I mean, for, for, for in the department I was in before, that was hard to do because there weren't many virologists. But here, I would hope, and it'd be nice to collaborate with virologists and sort of sit down and, and, and think about, you know, how can we, how can we validate these models? How can we take advantage of existing data such that the experimental data gets fit into that? And so you become, it becomes a sort of cycle of research then that, 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 that seems quite natural. Yeah. And, and I think that's a, there's a big change in biology occurring that it is becoming a data science. You know, ultimately, if we can then represent that that biological, that virological data numerically, we can start to use machine learning. We can start to, you know, put do, do, do quite sophisticated analysis of the patterns and signals in the data that will be very, very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, lots of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, in your capacity, so that, that was maybe all covering your principal yeah. So in your capacity as the head of CVR Bioinformatics, what is what is that? So, so I, I, I manage the, the bioinformatics group and so um, we both support and work with the researchers, the experimentalists in the CVR, helping them do the data analysis of, of their data. Um, I mean, there are some also development of software and so the, 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 the group have put together pipelines for things like um, high-throughput sequencing data. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's projects on developing resources like the HCV Glue resource is a good example where um, the, there's, a, there's an underlying framework that's been put together that allows people to now go online and do genotyping and look at drug-resistant mutations. And so that's all supported by the bioinformatics unit. Um, I guess the challenge is to maybe integrate more computational biology to be a bit more data-driven. And so by either um, writing grants, getting postdocs, adding PhD students, mm-hmm. and so increasing the kind of data-driven capacity of the CVR in, in, in terms of um, computational virology. Yeah. Essentially, there's large signaling networks that are directed mm-hmm. the viruses, you know, do, 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 and, it, and you're looking at the 
mathematically you can define so what nodes minimum set of nodes would you interact with to control it and so the one of the models it just finds the receptors because it assumes that if you just touch the receptors everything downstream can be controlled and that's just nonsense yeah, you know? yeah. and so the other one is this, this model maximum dominating set which looks not just at the receptors but identifies the nodes that would, that would control that network and so, and so and so we're trying to we're just we're trying to submit this somewhere high impact is there a way to look at then if you look at a network and can you see maybe that this this network is being touched by the virus but actually there's no evidence that it is being is there any way you can do that or well, so we, I mean so let's, so some of the interactions which are only there once and so some of them are clearly you know nobody ever cites it no they don't you know that's you know replication is important science if nobody repeats a result nobody finds it again then, then, then that I guess tells you it's probably less important. But, but the, I think that sometimes that's that's that, that's yeah, it's hard to know what's yeah what's going on fully. Yeah, because some of those interactions might occur, but then not be that important. You know, the virus is interacting with different receptors, but we're fairly confident the important ones are CD4, CXCR4, and CCR5. And, right. and so yeah, yeah. So is there any worry that you might have like missed a node because no one thought to check? Well, but it's only, I mean, I guess, yeah. it, I mean, these are statistical analysis, and so it doesn't matter too much if the data's noisy. I mean, and we accept that the data's got flaws and it's very noisy. Experimentalists hate it because they can look at the data, look at the yeah. list, and go, that interaction isn't true. Doesn't make sense. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. make sense. And it's like when somebody tells you a lie, it doesn't matter how well you know that person, how <laughs> yeah, many things yeah, they've yeah. told you before in the past. One lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's a, and that's a bit like that with the data that. And, and I guess that's, a, that, again, a challenge is to sort of maybe, I guess, leverage the virology expertise and CVR to build cleaner data sets. Yeah, because yeah. I guess this is you working backwards, but if you work forwards, then what that's... I think, yeah, well, I think that's where it becomes in, because it's really then about building models that are real in some way, that, that create, that, 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 that capture the best knowledge we have of these systems. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I guess HIV is a... Perfect. And HIV is always it's it's important because it because of the, the, the ongoing pandemic and because of that there's a lot of data generated mm -hmm. and and it's the same with the human genome. The, there's now so much data for the human system that we've become a model organism that that you you often would start studying things in humans because of the amount of data that's available, which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so are you are you still focusing on HIV or is it sort of so so yes so what, what's the next virus? So so um, what was uh, we've got a bit of focus on the or, or um, on the HIV one transmission pairs and mm -hmm. so there's very interesting data sets where they've shown that the the virus that's that establishes it in a donor um, from tends to be not like the virus that's circulating necessarily in the recipient at the time and so it seems to be reverting mm -hmm. to an older form of the virus and. While genetically the signal for reversion is very similar or the same as an ancestral strain being being transmitted, mm -hmm. and so we're just looking at the data to try and tease that apart and ask the question: Is the number of reversions you see in these types of data sets statistically plausible, given that we know HIV one can uh, archive itself and reemerge? So is it, is it an ancestral? Yeah, and I'm, I, I mean, I, I'm hedging my bets. That's an ancestral virus that's been transmitted. Um, and, and not not like sets of reversions, and and it's very interesting because it's sort of 
some evidence in HCV, some evidence in HPV and other systems that this tendency of the, that the virus that's transmitted looks like the virus that established an infection in the individual could be generalizable. And, and, and that seems very interesting. And, and, it, and it's very much that the, that the... So almost as if some of these chronic infections are, in terms of transmission, behaving like acute infections. And so although you have persistence through that infection, a lot of the the, the virus that's transmitted is tending to look like a certain type, which and 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 a lot of the focus about the generation of this data in HIV one is about vaccine design, because this means that it becomes a much smaller set of variation that you have to target. Right, the one that looks like the answer. The one that looks like the answer. And so that's very interesting, I think, in terms of understanding the types of signals and things like interferon response are clearly very important for. Um, I guess regulating that first viral that viral um, establishment, and so that's again a big interest in the CVR, and so there's 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 some interesting collaborations I think to be had so around that. Are the the transmitter finder ones are they are they similar between different transmitter finders versus so do they, they, do the transmitter finding viruses look similar? So they tend to so 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 the way that we do the analysis is we. We, we take a kind of cohort ancestor, and so the virus that tends to be transmitted looks more like the cohort ancestor, if that makes sense. So not mm-hmm. as much similar to each other as similar oh, okay. to an ancestral strain. If you took strain. someone you know, from a different outbreak, a transmitter finder virus, and compared it to a, another transmitter finder virus from another outbreak? So probably because of the, the structure of the, the trees, that the, the actual, the, the cohort ancestors will be reasonably similar. And so, just so 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 for often, the, if you look at the, compare the cohort ancestor to some of these regions, it's quite not too far from the subtype ancestor. Okay. And, and so 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 we're yeah we're playing with that actually to see if we can then because there are data sets where you could maybe then use the subtype ancestor as as a as a as a proxy for that cohort mm-hmm. ancestor and see if that helps us tease apart these mutations because that's an interesting question. Do you then see the same the same site changing because that might be telling us something about yeah. Similar responses in different people, and and I think that that's that's a question that we'd like to look into. Yeah, and then I guess you can dive in sort of experimentally and identify what is actually yeah what's yeah the virus what's trying what's, to get around what's the virus trying to get around? Is it a particular yeah interferon response, or is there some molecule that targeting? Mm-hmm. Is there something we know already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know. Uh, you're simple about how the virus has got different ways to control a cell. So would you be able to look at this and say whether a transmitter found a virus was controlling cells differently to how sort of a, I don't know, a mid-infection virus was doing it? I guess maybe it's maybe more to do with the sort of sites of establishment and yeah. but but uh, uh, yeah I guess I think that's it's, it's, you wouldn't maybe expect Sets of the basic set of interactions that have to be made to be too different. Maybe mm-hmm. more. It's because because I guess when you're thinking of the control theory, you're thinking about the virus targeting the host, and that's very much viral host interactions. Yeah, yeah. But then the reasons for the early viruses being more successful has got much more to do with the host viral interaction. So the responses yeah. to the infection. So you have that directionality. You've got you've got and you've got to think about it like that. I think. But we're also we're also seeing lots. We're, we're, we're studies looking at the interest in the microbiome, and then although there's been although there's been tens of thousands of studies on the microbiome, the virome is still fairly neglected. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 clearly, if you're looking at 
bacteria and archaea, you know, you've got to think about the viruses that infect them. And so we've got quite a few projects where we're looking at that kind of the, the, the specificity of, of that relationship um, and, and also, I guess, um, longitudinal data sets. So how, the, how phage, for example, are changing through time, how that affects the bacteria. Um, and, and that kind of links to, to you know, the apparent role of the microbiome in disease states. Because, again, these are dynamic systems. And so because it's dynamic, that means that change is normal. And a lot of that change and cycling is due to the viruses, the phage in the system. And so if you're trying to make arguments about disease states, you have to sort of get a handle on what the normal dynamic is before you can identify, you know, any kind of disease state. And so there are nice data sets emerging from uh, models like asthma, where you have people that have, um, for example, rhinovirus infection. And then that also can have knock-on effects for the microbiome, the phage that are present. And so we've got data that show that this is changing through time as well. And, and, And so these are, I guess, thinking more holistically about the viruses that individuals carry, how viruses that are, um, I guess, in all of us that don't cause harm can become harm and harmful in the case of rhinoviruses and asthma. And, and so the, 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 I can say almost the ecology of viruses is interesting, how these things co-occur, what, 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 what changes in terms of evolutionary change. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so I, but I guess a major driver of your research has been HIV. So I guess I think that's where I started. So it's a recurring interest. I think a lot of us are are, are opportunistics and opportunistic <laughs> researchers. And you, and 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 you, once you get interested in something, it's hard to put it down. And if, you know, if I was to give advice to people, I would try to monitor your opportunities. Don't don't not. <laughs> Sometimes opportunities can drag you into things that you'll spend years, you know, trying to do research on, and that that, that you, you can't spread yourself too thin. But in a good way or a bad way? Well, I think it, it would. It, it, I guess we always underestimate how long it takes to do things, and so we think, "Oh, that I'll, I'll get interested in that, and that won't take too long." But the next thing, you're years later, you know, trying to finish a paper or or, or finish a project, and 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 it's always hard to gauge which ones are going to be successful. So, so it is important, I guess, to do lots of different things, to study lots of different things, but at the same time. If you spread yourself too thin, the literature becomes hard to keep up with, and you just can end up, I guess, drawing. drawing yeah. a bit. <laughs> but again, but that between email and, and, yeah. and admin tasks and 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 just 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 reading the literature, it's I think being a contemporary scientist is becoming difficult. There's there's a lot of information, um, social media, Twitter. You know, these these are all pulls on time, and so how you. How you manage your time is, 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 is you know, it's it's difficult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, so, would you say HIV is your favorite virus, or? Um. Is that right? I don't. I don't. I don't. I just. I don't know if you can have a. F- I, I, I guess these are interesting systems to study. Um. I guess a lot of my core research interest is is around kind of disease and trying to understand why is it genetic disease exists and and um, how is it that some viruses cause illness and some of these systems allow you to do more analysis computationally and so if by favorite you mean 
you know, which system do you think by taking a kind of computational bioinformatics theoretical approach we might be able to make a difference in? I think, yes, HIV stands out because of the large data sets that exist. Um, and it's a challenging system to study. It's, it, it, it's, in some sense, it's, you know, it's a virus that infects our immune system. It's just taken a very, um, brave way to make its living. It's not, it's, it, it's, it's upregulating the immune response to generate cells to infect. Uh, that's, you know, that's attacking the very system that's been designed for, for millions and millions of years to defend against viruses. Um, and our system can't clear it. So, so, so it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's, it's a real puzzle in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe on that note, you can tell us if you couldn't have been a scientist and you couldn't have worked on HIV, what would you have done? Well, actually, um, um, I, I think I, I like science fiction and I somehow like to be involved in science fiction. I think when I was young, I read a lot of science fiction. Um, and, and in some sense, that's what got me interested in science. And I love science fiction movies. Um, and actually recently in the Manchester Science Festival, we've been working with a science fiction writer and we've been putting together an event that sort of makes a dramatic kind of theatrical event where we talk about a viral outbreak. And I find that very interesting, and 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 using science fiction as a vehicle to communicate science was was very enjoyable, and and you know questions like um, why do viruses want to kill us, and you and and that's an, you know that, that 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 they don't want to kill us, they just want to replicate, and and so I think I think I'd like to yeah somehow be involved in science fiction. I, I don't know if I'd ever manage to write, but you know just to be kind of in that interface of communicating what science is and, and, and the science fiction, I guess, very much is about explain, uh, exploring technology and um, our world sort of in often near futures. And so it's really about now. And so actually, you know, no, we, 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 we're, we're not very good at, 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 at understanding how technology will change the world. And one of the few vehicles that that's explored in is science fiction. Yeah. Do ever catch yourself reading a paper and thinking, oh, this would make a great movie? <laughs> well, well, yeah, well, more that I think sometimes now the science is, is ahead of the science fiction. And so actually that uh, by working with writers or science fiction writers, we could actually do some great movies because yeah. the, the, the science is incredible. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I think often it's, or, or as a scientist, you watch movies and sometimes the frustration at the, how badly it's done, you know, you know, stuff about the brain not being used. It's yeah. just, oh my gosh. <laughs> I think it's, it's, like, oh. it's that uncanny value. You know, if, if it's so ridiculous, it's almost fine. But if it's that trying to be, you know, it uses the words that scientists use, but then says the wrong thing. I yeah, mean, yeah, really bad. yeah. And so, and so, so I guess it's it's trying to find, yeah, the best movies to. But, but maybe if we were put in charge, they'd be really dull. <laughs> We'd be so busy explaining the details. Contagion? Contagion is great. But that's Contagion is one of the best. They did it well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That that was a very good movie. Thank you to David and Jack, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing about what computational biology has to offer in understanding HIV and other viruses, and I hope you remember World AIDS Day. Thank you. So maybe can we do the start the first bit again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we can edit it, edit it back in. Uh, yeah, maybe.
Maybe get a drink after this. Do you want to put it inside? I think this is boring. Hmm? It's already. Uh, I think it's been there. Oh, wow. oh, it's water. It's just water. <laughs> what could it? Yeah. It can't be. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. So this was this abstract piece. Yeah, yeah, that's so. I talked yeah. a bit about that in the control theory stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was quite difficult to understand. <laughs> yeah, for a I was. Been, I mean, it's taken me a journey to understand.